Welcome to the Logically Faithful Podcast. I am your host, Keldoon Swice. I am Associate Professor of Philosophy at the City Colleges of Chicago, Alam Harvey College. I am also Tutor of Philosophy with Oxford University. I have been studying the Christian faith for over two decades and have authored three books on the matter. I am a father of two amazing children and one wonderful wife. I am here to help you find evidence for your faith so you can be deal with suffering in life like I did for greater fulfillment that is life changing. One of the prime motives of this podcast is to help the thinker believe and help the believer to think and think deeply about their faith. Let's go ahead and get started with season two, episode number five. His name is Dwayne The Rock Johnson. He says that faith had helped me. His faith in God is the one that got him through the darkness of his own life. He wrote, you're not the first to go through it. You're not going to be the last to go through it. And oftentimes it happens. You just feel that way and you feel alone. You feel like it's only you. You're in a bubble, he said. I wish I had someone at that time who could pull me aside and say, Hey, it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. I wish I knew that. If you were to study the life of Dwayne The Rock Johnson, you'll find a lot of turbulence in there. Struggling in his life as he uh, was not chosen for the football team that he went forward for. And also as he went through the WWF and a successful career there and moving on from there. And in the struggle of his deep depression into, into the acting career. He said it's his deep relationship with God that helped him dark, uh, navigate through the darkness of his own life. And this theme that you can trust God to go through this. And it's not the just good people who actually make it through the good things of life. It's actually people who are forgiven. If people who are broken who actually make it through. And this is my thesis in this podcast uh, this time, this season, in this particular episode. People who say that only bad people suffer or that only good people make it to heaven have no idea what they're talking about. It is not good people that make it to heaven. It is forgiven people that make it to heaven. And it is broken people are the ones that really change their own lives and the lives of those around them. Both theists, Christians, even Muslims, and even atheists are wrong if they think that wickedness and evil, suffering and terror are not allowed personally by God. Every single action in the universe, every minor action into microverse, and in the multi-universe, if such a thing exists, must be signed off at the desk of God himself. No rock falls down a cliff in Budapest. No deer crosses the street in the middle of the forest of Siberia. No electron circles an atom in Amman without God allowing it. Yes, that means that no hurricane, no tornado, no handgun goes off without God knowing about it. Job did not say, the Lord gave and the devil took away. No, if you were to read the story of Job, which is in the Torah, which is in the Bible, the inerrant words of God, documented to us by his people, Job himself went through deep suffering, and Job himself said, after his children were taken from him and ripped out of his life, after his, all his property was taken from him, after his servants came in and said, Dear Master, dear Job, your, your money's been taken, your wealth has been destroyed. And one of them came in and said, 
and wouldn't even lift his head. And I'm using poetic license here. And Job's saying, lift your eyes. Tell me, son, what happened? Tell me. And finally he lifted his head. He said, what I'm about to speak is too dangerous and too terrible for me to even utter it. Job said, speak. And he spoke. Your sons, all ten of them, all of them, even your daughters, are dead. Can you imagine how those words hit the soul of Job? What did Job do? He fell on his knees, he shaved his head, and he cried out, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. And then he ended it with these words that made the, tre- the devil furious. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now, I write this with, in, in a, a podcast about this with razor cuts on my own wrists and on my own soul of grief. Tears flow when I write about pain and I podcast about suffering. And I say this as academically as possible about po- suffering and pain. It clearly sucks. <laughs> the Bible asks us, does disaster fall upon a city unless the Lord has done it? What about a hospital? What about a school? Yes, God ordained it. God let it happen. How could we wrap our minds around that? It takes time. And through this podcast, I'll be going through some of the theological and philosophical and ethical implications of that. I recognize what I'm assuming here. It's hard stuff. I've wept with my cousin when his brother, the father of four, drowned in Lake Michigan as he fell off a cruise ship. I was with others as they stood helplessly as their child suffered and died slowly from cancer. I watched on the verge of madness as an elder I knew, a man I dearly loved, refused to deal with his own pain and sorrow and his own guilt and his own sins and did not repent before he died. Yes, God is supreme and Lord of all the universe, including the hurricanes in Texas and even the pain of my dear friend whose marriage ended in a broken, bitter divorce. God is sovereign over all that. Are we to believe God allows these things to happen? Well, how can we not? If God exists, everything happens under his watch. Everything, all things happen under his watch. That's what the scriptures declare over and over again. It says that the falling of a sparrows doesn't happen without God personally knowing about it. Even the rolling of a dice, God knows the numbers before they are even rolled. Now we have to be careful of blaming God for the evil and disasters that happen around us. It's very easy to fall under that misconception. Interesting, in Proverbs chapter 19, verse 3, it says, a person's folly leads to his own ruin, yet his heart rages against the Lord. So you dig your own pit, you fall into it, and what do you do? You blame God for it. Oh boy, this is the standard human motif that goes on in that realm. We have to be careful of that. We have to understand that when you go through suffering, when you go through pain, as the rock did, and as a lot of others do, as Job did, that God is the one who's moving you through it to transform you, to remake you, to, to, to make in you something that is remarkable and new. Going back to my thesis here, people who say that only bad people suffer or that only good people make it to heaven have no idea what they're talking about. It is not good people that make it to heaven. It's forgiven people that make it to heaven. And it is broken people are the ones who really change their own lives and the lives of those around them. Remember as I write this, the God that I'm talking about is a God who was beaten, torched, 
hurt, battered, bled, and even betrayed by those he loved. And he himself, Christ, was forsaken by his own father, which was the deepest type of pain he could have gone through. We have to remember that, that God himself draws us through this, and he lets us go through it for something that will transform us and make us better through it. Think of the example of the snake, the serpent, uh, one of the most deadliest animals in the animal kingdom, specifically of its venom. Interestingly enough, in the, uh, um, in the story in the Old Testament, when Moses was uh, talking to the people of Israel, he um, had traveled over the Red Sea with them into the, into the uh, place called Edom. But the people were very impatient, and they spoke against God, and they were angry at Moses and said, why have you brought us out of Egypt? They were very bitter. Uh, and God got upset at them for, for saving them, and then they're bitter about it because they don't have the same things they had before. So God sent venomous snakes among them that bit the people. And, uh, and Moses, and some of them died, yes. And Moses uh, said, Lord, what can we do? Well, we've sinned against the Lord. Help. Uh, what can we do, Lord? And, and Moses was asked this, this question by the people. And God told Moses, take a snake, wrap it around, and lift it up, your staff. And Moses did. And God said to the Moses, Make, uh, anyone who's bitten can look at this snake and live. So Moses made a bronze snake, actually a bronze one, is what he's looking at here, and put it on a pole, and anyone who was bitten looked at the snake, and they were healed, and they lived. Jesus himself said in John chapter 3, verse uh, 13, 14, uh, 14 through 15, that just as the Israelites were cured of their sicknesses and poisoned by looking about the snake that Moses put it up, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. And anyone who looks upon him through their pain, through their suffering, will be redeemed through it and will be saved. Because through the death of Jesus and his resurrection, there is true life to be found. This snake is a potential beast that can kill, but it's also the beast and the venom that can also heal as well. As you work your way through suffering, my friend, remember, God will not allow one incident to happen to you, no matter how inconsequential, if you love Jesus and have given your heart to him. That in one way or another, God will use it to work it out for your good. And we know that those who love God, all things work together for the good of them who are called according to his purpose. This is Romans chapter 8, verse 28. This is the promise of God, my friend. Remember that people who say bad people suffer and, um, and deserve to suffer and that good people are the ones who make it through have no idea what they're talking about because heaven is not for good people. Good things are not just for good people. No, it is not good people that make it to heaven. It's forgiven people. And broken people are the ones that really change their lives and the lives of those around them. Matter of fact, psychological studies on this issue have borne this out. Consider the work of Richard Tadashi and Lawrence Calhoun, and there will be uh, references to this in the show notes. They actually talk about something called post-traumatic growth. It's a term that's coined by these psychologists to talk about serious illnesses and serious suffering that people go through bereavements and serious illnesses like cancer, house fires, combat, um, becoming refugees, etc. People who go through this trauma and actually learn from it and learn to deal with it and allow God to transform them through it, they expect to have positive life changes better than they had before. 
They gain a new inner strength, discover new skills they didn't even know they had and that they took for granted. They become more compassionate to others. They become more comfortable with intimacy. They don't stop caring about what other people think. They start doing more things and become more productive than ever. One of the common changes they argue that in this uh, work that they do, that the spiritual and philosophical aptitudes of their own life become enhanced. They actually become a well of knowledge and life for other people. Let God use this period to transform you. Trust him through it. Let me um, uh, start wrapping this up where I'll talk about the Baldwin brothers. Um, Alec Baldwin is one of the most famous. I'm talking about specifically Stephen Baldwin, which is interesting. On the back of his neck, and I'll show this in the show notes, is a tattoo that says 330. It's actually a tattoo of John chapter 3, verse 30. And it says, I must decrease, so he must increase. Interesting, isn't it? That's countercultural. See, he's the youngest of the siblings of the, uh, the Baldwins. And after 9-11, he had a crisis of faith. And um, he began to fall um, uh, on his knees and trust Christ through the, the darkness there. And interesting, his story is fascinating because he talks about when he had a baby, a baby girl, him and his wife, Kenya, um, hired a Brazilian uh, nanny to come in and take care of the little girl. And when they did take care of the little girl, she would always be singing these wonderful songs about Jesus or Jesus. And his wife came in and asked her one day, Kenya asked her, Augusta, why are you always singing these songs about Jesus? Don't you have anything else in your um, uh, 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 library of songs? And the lady looked at her and laughed and laughed. She said, well, what are you laughing about? I mean, I hired you to take care of the baby. She said, that's why I'm laughing. <laughs> you actually think I'm here to take care of your baby. She said, then why are you here? She said, I have been told by God, by a prophetic word in my own church, that you and your husband will fall on your knees and become servants of the Most High God. You will follow Jesus. And not only that, you will start your own ministries because of it. I am here to um, inspire you to do that. Really? Well, later on, that's actually what happened. Uh, Alec, uh, Stephen Baldwin had given his life to Christ, and his wife had given her life to Christ, and he saw, after she went with the nanny to a church one uh, evening, came back, and her life was transformed. She would spend hours in the morning praying and worshiping God and reading the Bible. He saw her devotion, and he saw her transformed life, and that transformed him. And as 9-11 hit, the darkness of life brought the reality and the contrast of Christ to him. And he gave his life to Christ in that darkness, in that pit of suffering. So Alec Baldwin did it. The Rock did it. Job did it. God could use it to make you do it too, to change you and make you better. Let me close with the words of C.S. Lewis. Uh, in Mere Christianity, he said the following. Imagine yourself in a, as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing, so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abdominably and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here and putting out an extra floor there, running up the towers, making courtyards, you thought you were being made into a decent little cottage. Ah, but he is building a palace and he intends to come and live in it himself. 
You thought God was just in there changing things here and there. Oh, no. God's destroying the whole thing and rebuilding a new person inside you. He's making you into a new man and a new woman. Isn't that just awesome? So let me close with the thesis. People who say only bad people suffer or only good people make it to heaven have no idea what they're talking about. It is not good people that make it to heaven. It's forgiven people that make it to heaven. And broken people are the ones that really change their own lives and the lives of those around them. Now we come to our question and answer session. This is where you ask me questions that are on your heart and that I'll uh, attempt to give a hopefully reasonable, logical answer without putting my foot in my mouth. All right, we'll see how this goes. Uh, okay, this is a letter from Nathaniel. And Nathaniel writes, Dear Professor Swice, I have been reading Bart D. Ehrman's book, Misquoting Jesus, and my faith is shaken. I thought that his attack on the Bible is so well informed that he has shaken me to the core. My question is this. Do we really not have original copies of the manuscripts of the Bible? Are we really making all this stuff up? And what does this mean for us as Christians? Nathaniel, I, a powerful question you're asking, a very good one. Because I went through this myself. I went through a period of time where I struggled after I read his work. Because although I was given the basic information in seminary and the uh, college where we studied philosophy of religion and theology, it wasn't... Um, uh, impactful enough for me to leave a detailed tattoo mark on my soul to understand how to respond to this. So I had to really dig deep into my resources and found out that the objections that Bart Ehrman is raising actually are problems that Christians have had for centuries and have already addressed them. It's nothing new. Seriously, it's nothing new. And I didn't know that at the time, but I really struggled through it. So I understand what you're going through, uh, brother. I understand. Let's go ahead and try to address this as succinctly as possible. Now, for those of you who don't know, uh, Bart Ehrman is a scholar and a professor of, uh, not philosophy, theology at uh, Princeton. Uh, well, actually, he got his degree at Princeton Theological Seminary, and he teaches at Chapel Hill in North Carolina. Uh, he actually went to Moody Bible Institute and Wheaton College. Uh, he claimed to have a born-again experience, uh, he, and uh, he actually ended up walking away from his faith after one of his professors uh, challenged what he thought about biblical inerrancy, where he argued that maybe the author of Mark actually made a mistake in the original manuscripts. So he went to study um, with Bruce Metzger, considered one of the best New Testament uh, scholars in, in the history who was alive at the time. He recently passed away. Uh, Bart Ehrman, after he studied with him, ended up writing 20 books where he denounces the Bible and things about it. He doesn't call himself an atheist, although he's more of a skeptic. Uh, and in one of his major um, uh, criticisms says the following in his book, Misquoting Jesus. He says, not only do we not have originals of the New Testament, we don't even have copies of the originals. We don't even have copies of the 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 originals. What we have are copies made much later, much later. In most instances, there are copies made centuries later. All these copies differ from one another in many thousands of places. These copies differ from one another in so many places that we don't even know how many differences there are. Possibly it's easiest to put it in contemporary terms. There are more differences among our manuscripts than there are words in the New Testament. 
So he begins to critique the Bible on that passage, on that right front. See, what Bart Ehrman does in his work is his, his uh, data is correct. There are problems in the text uh, because of the manuscripts that we do have. You see, the New Testament has uh, many variations um, within it because there are thousands of manuscripts that testify to the authenticity of it. But these are copies of copies, and there are 300,000 to 400,000 variations within the manuscripts themselves. Uh, however, these do not cause any theological or ethical problems within Christendom or the doctrines or the dogma of the Christian faith. They have no problems at, a, uh, at all. For example, in the New Testament, in the Greek New Testament, there are 138,000 words. Um, there are many as 400,000 textual variants within those, but none of those actually are problematic enough to cause a stir among theologians. Now, people have known this throughout all of uh, Christendom. Um, I'll give you a background here. There are 40 different authors who wrote the Bible, at least. 66 manuscripts that maintain about miracles, prophecy, and the incredible works of God and his people over the 1,500 years of the text. They all talk about God interfering, interfering in the world. Hear me clearly, Nathaniel. Their reliability is one of the most remarkable feats in all of history. There may appear to be discrepancies that look like differences of opinion or differences or variations of words, but none of these have a problem with the theology or given us a problem with the salvific message that God has put forward for us. So where are the original manuscripts? Well, we don't have them. They're not hidden in some Vatican vault. But what we do have is something actually better than the originals. We have copies. And these copies are so close to the originals that we can actually deduce from the copies what the original said better than him in the original manuscript. Let me give you an example. So imagine you have a uh, copy of a wonderful recipe that your mother made. Let's call it Recipe X from Mama of cookies. And this recipe is the best cookies that you could possibly get. And uh, you only have one copy written by her hand. And then you take this copy, and then you wanted to share it with your friends. So you share it with 15 friends, all of whom take it out their hand, and, and they write the recipe down, and then they just change the manuscript over the, through the table. They change it and move it around the table. And everybody writes down um, the copy of the recipe. Then they all go home. Now, is it possible that somebody wrote something wrong? Of course, somebody may have written two scoops of sugar instead of one. Somebody may have written 1.5 instead of 2.2 of scoops of vanilla, etc. But what you do is, uh, and then, uh, so that, that's the problem. In copying, there may be errors there. And those are called variations, or textual variants. Now, what happens if you take this recipe and on your way home, um, it falls out of the car, and there's an oil fire on the uh, highway, and there's a fire sets. Uh, the, the recipe goes up in flames. You have no original anymore. What do you do? Throw your hands up and say, forget it? No. You call all 15 of your friends back on the table. Everybody puts their um, recipe up in front. And then uh, what you do is you compare all the manuscripts together. And from that comparison of these recipes, you can find out exactly which person at the table made the mistake and which ones didn't. And now you have, you can recreate the original. Did you know that was, that's exactly what we do with the Bible? This is actually called textual criticism, Nathaniel. It's a specific area of study that you can actually get a doctorate degree in. It forces us to look at the original, the manuscripts that we have, the closest extent manuscripts, to, to deduce what was originally said. And what, is, what ends up being a problem is something that Mark Twain said. 
It's not the things I don't understand that I find out in the Bible that bother me. No, it's the things that I do understand. And the scriptures testify to their own veracity in incredible ways. The Bible has more manuscript evidence than all the major works of the ancient world, more than Homer, Plato, Aristotle, Caesar, Tactus. Remarkably, there's widespread evidence of the absolute reliability of the scriptures. Right now, according to the best New Testament scholars like um, Wallace, and, uh, we have over 5,300 copies of the New Testament in 25,000 fragments and more than 14,000 existing Old Testament manuscript fragments throughout the Middle East, Mediterranean, and Europe regions. When we put these all together using the textual criticism criteria I mentioned earlier, we can deduce with almost 99% certainty of what the U.S. journals actually said. This is almost miraculous if you want to put it that way. There are different ways of testing the reliability of the Bible, and I'll put that in the show notes. But Bart Ehrman, um, his, his facts are right, but his conclusion isn't. Merely because we have copies of copies, it doesn't mean that we don't have a reliable text that we can trust for our standard of life, ethics, and salvation. Rather, because of the variations, now we have even better standard than what we had if we didn't have and because we don't have the original, we have a better standard now than what we had before. So um, don't let that confuse you. Don't let it bother you. Move forward with your faith, uh, Nathaniel. And I hope that helps encourage you about the wonders um, of the Bible. Now, take a look at Daniel Wallace. Uh, he actually did a debate with um, uh, Bart Ehrman, and so did one of my, uh, one of my friends, uh, Mike, Mike Lacona, who did a debate with him as well. And take a look at those debates and see for yourself how they point out his flaws, his fallacies in his, in his position that he's put forward. Hope that encourages you, brother. Keep pressing forward in what you're doing. So let me go ahead and wrap this up, and thank you for your time in being with me. Uh, you can follow me at logicallyfaithful.com, where there is a free ebook for you called Blind Spots of Science. And if you have a question regarding faith, matters of culture, faith, logic, ethics, religion, feel free to email me at Keldoon at LogicallyFaithful.com. Now go make the world a better place, one life at a time. <laughs>